Welcome to this episode of Heart Failure in Focus. I'm your host, Muthu Vanaganathan, and this podcast is hosted by Radcliffe Medical Education and is supported through an unrestricted educational grant from AstraZeneca. Please note this podcast is intended for healthcare professionals. Welcome back to Heart Failure in Focus. Uh, we have a very exciting episode to kick the new year off. Um, we know it's been some time since you've heard from us from Heart Failure in Focus. The first half of the episodes really focused on new innovation in heart failure. And we hope to close the uh, podcast sessions with operationalizing heart failure care, especially in health systems alongside colleagues across disciplines. And so we have a excellent episode ahead that focuses on the intersection between heart failure and chronic kidney disease, perhaps one of the most challenging entities to tackle in terms of heart failure care. And I am so honored and privileged to be joined by Dr. Kieran McCafferty, who is a consultant nephrologist at Barts Health NHS Trust and a senior lecturer at Queen Mary University London. Uh, welcome, Kieran. Really, uh, uh, really thankful for you to be able to join us today. Thank you very much. It's it's great to be able to join you, and I hope I hope you're allowing kidney doctors in your heart failure podcast. So it feels a, a great opportunity to fly the flag of kidney disease. Excellent. It's uh, we need uh, the profession of nephrology uh, to to keep us in check and to keep us honest. So we really uh, really appreciate you joining us. So let's kick things off. You know, we we both recognize that heart failure and chronic kidney disease have a high burden at a societal and population level. Um, and they it's a two-way road. In, in heart failure, for instance, I can tell you that uh, especially in high-risk settings, such as those who are hospitalized for heart failure, over 50%, over one in two individuals have some form of chronic kidney disease. And um, I'm sure the same is true in terms of the flip side of the practice that you see as nephrologists um, of uh, a high burden of heart failure in chronic kidney disease. Is that the case? Yeah, so so I, I, could, I can see your 50% and probably raise you up to 80%, I would imagine, of, of people on hemodialysis have some evidence of heart failure. And, and the, the rates of heart failure as CKD progresses, um, rises, of course, it, it, it the, the problem with, I guess, heart failure in the CKD population is, is it can be more difficult to diagnose. So we know that the standard ways we diagnose heart failure in the non-CKD population are, are, are difficult with people with CKD simply because as CKD progresses, they, you know, you're able to clear less water. So volume overload may not be necessarily a, a symptom or, or a, a, you know, caused by heart failure per se. So it can be more difficult to diagnose people with CKD or are, are frail and have multiple symptoms, maybe deconditioned. So they may have reduced exercise tolerance, perhaps not because of, of heart failure. And then, of course, the, the kind of the echo findings of, 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 of heart failure in people with advanced CKD is kind of different from those with with normal renal function. So it's a very, very difficult field. And, and you know, I can see that it's it's tricky for nephrologists and cardiologists to try and make sense of of the differing symptoms diagnosis, even, I guess, even biomarkers. So we know that NT-proBNP may change according to GFR, even though there's no change in the, in the myocardial function. So it is, it is very, very difficult. Yeah. 
brilliant, uh, you know, I, uh, across the spectrum from biomarkers to structural evidence on echocardiography to even at the bedside, um, uh, this intersection is extremely challenging. Thankfully, though, we've had uh, innovation in terms of new drug discovery in both chronic kidney disease and in heart failure. Um, and interestingly, uh, many of the drug uh, therapeutic advances are shared between the two disciplines that renin-angiotensin system inhibitors, mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists, and the SGLT2 inhibitors seem to be disease-modifying in both patients with chronic kidney disease um, and separately in individuals with heart failure. And so it really does speak to common biology and, and common uh, disease pathophysiology. Um, but I want to spend a moment on where we may have some gaps in the evidence, um, at least in the heart failure space and in heart failure clinical trials. Many individuals with chronic kidney disease are somewhat underrepresented or maybe even excluded routinely from heart failure trials. So can you speak to some of the limits of our evidence and um, uh, where do we actually have the, uh, the bulk of evidence supporting the role of these therapies? So if, if you wanted me to speak on the limits of our evidence, I think the podcast would probably last about three hours because in people with, with very advanced CKD, there, ver there is very, very little evidence. So, you know, for decades, and this is where I bang my drum on behalf of the nephrology community, the cardiology trials have routinely systematically excluded patients with, you know, moderate to severe CKD from all the landmark cardiovascular outcome trials. And, you know, as a clinical trialist in nephrology, I looked at my cardiology colleagues for many years with their 1A evidence and, you know, guideline directed therapies. And essentially in nephrology for two decades, we really haven't had any drugs that changed the outcome of our patients, not since the late 90s with ACE and ARBs. And, and we were really limited by, by our by any new therapies. And, and there's been a, quite a few therapies that we tried and have failed. And so it has been an absolute golden era um, of, of outcome trials for, like you say, patients with uh, heart disease and kidney disease. And so it's a real, you know, a real golden age. So um I feel we. I feel as a as a nephrologist, you know, going from you know um, only having you know ACEs or ARBs to really offer a patient now to a whole gamut of therapies, like you said, ACRB, SGLT twos, our novel MRAs, even in our even in our you know our our diabetic kidney disease patients, even GLP one receptor agonists. So so you know for for years I've looked on my nephrology colleagues with your you know four pillars dreaming when we only had two pillars or even one pillar that the table would always fall over, and now I think that nephrology is catching up somewhat with our cardiology colleagues that we're not able to offer our patients sequential, you know, multi-pronged approach for, for their progressive proteinuric CKD. Absolutely. And, and in, in speaking of those pillars, you know, for instance, let's take, take standard therapies for heart failure today. Um, you know, if we take the ACE inhibitors, ARBs, and Secutrovalsartan, in general, patients, uh, we have a, a reasonable level of evidence down to an EGFR of about 30 um, when the mineralocorticoid receptor antagonist, people become a little bit um, uh, um, wary of using these therapies at low GFR, especially because of the hyperkalemic risks. Um, and so in general, the use uh, falls off quickly as EGFR falls below 45 and certainly below 30. Thankfully, with the SGLT2 inhibitors, we now have a robust level of evidence down to an EGFR of 20. And so that does allow for um, uh, use, especially in this 
high-risk comorbid patient with chronic kidney disease and heart failure. Thankfully, we have now new trials underway, including the global renal life cycle trial. That's about 1,500 patients uh, who have um, who are either on dialysis or who are approaching end-stage kidney disease. Um, and these patients um, uh, are being randomized to an SGLT2 inhibitor or placebo. So hopefully we will learn more even uh, about use of these therapies, even uh, in patients with end-stage kidney disease. Um, so I'd like to turn um, a bit to addressing the, the problem at hand, in which we have many effective therapies now in both disease states, but large implementation gaps. And so what do you see as the major barriers to care, um, especially at this intersection between heart failure and chronic kidney disease? So it's a great question. So, I, you know, I think that patients with CKD and heart failure are difficult. So I think we just need to admit up front that they are more difficult to manage, that, you know, they they are um, they are difficult for our primary care physicians to manage in the community. They are multimorbid. They have frequent hospital admissions with frequent changes in their medical therapies. You know, patients come in with, you know, heart failure and AKI, their diuretics get stopped, their kidney function gets better, they get discharged, they become more um, fluid overloaded, they get admitted back in again. So it is a, it is a, a big challenge. Um, but what I think we can do is we can implement the things that we know work now, you know, encourage our... Um, uh, our, our primary care physicians to sort of diagnose and treat these conditions early. So we know that, you know, having progressive CKD is one of the most potent risk factors for future heart failure. So I would argue that identifying and treating CKD early will prevent people developing heart failure in the future. Equally, optimizing um, patients' heart failure medications will hopefully prevent these episodes of acute kidney injury, renal hyperperfusion, and, and progressive CKD. So I think there's an opportunity for both cardiologists, nephrologists, indeed diabetologists and our primary care physicians to work to, to, to optimize people's therapy and um, to prevent these these um, this kind of uh, you know vicious cycle of, of worsening uh, chronic kidney disease with worsening heart failure. Yeah, there's no question that we do need to um, make as many uh, uh, strides towards empowering primary care physicians to take on the challenge of, of managing chronic kidney disease and heart failure um, uh, as possible. And, and you know, at, at the population level, because of um, specialty access limitations to nephrology care, to cardiology care in various countries and various uh, sub-regions, um, we see that most patients with chronic kidney disease and most patients with heart failure globally are under the care of primary care. Um, so I want us to Let's let's look forward in 2023 and uh, beyond. How do you envision the optimal collaborative care model? As I understand it, you have a very unique practice uh, in terms of a, a collaborative care model in, in uh, nephrology. And um, I, I wonder if you could share with our listeners your model and how you envision how we can optimize uh, collaborative care moving forward. So, you know, what I would say is I think whatever model works for you in your institution, in your community, and, you know, there are various models of, of you know, um, multi, multi-morbid clinics, either diabetic 
um, renal clinics or cardiorenal clinics, and they can work really well to, to, to bridge the gap between the cardiology and nephrology fields. I would I would actually argue that rather than doubling up having cardiologists and nephrologists, you know, sitting opposite each other in, in the corridors in a joint clinic, we should move we should move towards a kind of multi-morbidity speciality because I know that, you know, clearly I'm not as good at managing heart failure as a cardiologist, but I would argue a lot of baseline heart failure mild to moderate heart failure can be managed by non-heart failure specialists. Equally, I would hope that a lot of very straight, simple, straightforward awareness of nephrology can be done by cardiologists. And equally, you know, as a as a nephrologist with an interest in diabetes, I can I'm not, you know, the the best, you know, tertiary diabetes management, but I'm perhaps better than primary care. And so I think looking at 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 at, at getting specialists who are comfortable managing across specialities that are that are able to manage the the bulk of the bread and butter, as you would say, um, you know, cardiology, diabetes, nephrology. And I think that might be a better way to go. And then that will also give confidence to our primary care physicians um, to take on, you know, to take on some more roles in in the in the patient's care. And, and I, I like what you said that, you know, a lot of a lot of CKD and a lot of heart failure is based in the community. And so we really need to think of good ways of how we engage with and how we empower our, our primary care um, colleagues to, to manage these patients. Because like you say, you know, nephrologists and cardiologists, perhaps more cardiologists are an expensive, are an expensive bunch of, of doctors to, to, to look after patients. I couldn't agree with you more. And, you know, in many ways, our collective goal is to, raise the standard of heart failure and chronic kidney disease care globally, and in many ways improve the broad, equitable implementation of available medical therapies. And our own guidelines in heart failure and chronic kidney disease sometimes can add complexity. There's many class one, class two recommendations where uh, maybe a generalist, a primary care physician, may back away from approaching those complex syndromes. But our goal, I think, is to put forward simple messages that standardize practice. And um, I think we are moving towards that because of really pillar-based care. I think pillar-based care in both chronic kidney disease and in heart failure embraces a solution that really a one-size-may-fit-many um, uh, um, and uh, may be an optimal solution, at least a starting solution, in which many clinicians can participate in the care and get the patient on basic therapies um, that uh, uh, that can be further optimized down the road. Um, and so I think that that is a, uh, a, a kind of a, um, a very forward-looking message in 2023 um, in both disciplines. And I'm curious kind of... Um, uh, to kind of in the, these final minutes, in heart failure, certainly we have embraced this notion of rapid implementation um, and um, upfront um, quadruple therapy has now become standard of care. I'm curious if the same has uh, been embraced in the nephrology community. Is there this urgency to treat chronic kidney disease? So, so it's a you know that's a great question, and and actually we we we're learning from our cardiology colleagues that for too long I think for you know CKD and perhaps diabetic kidney disease there's been an an, an inertia to to treat that patients take years to get 
to their goal target of of you know optimized uh, ACE inhibitor, ARB, blood pressure, um, and cholesterol, etc. And I think that uh, you the cardiologist plan of, of get them on evidence based therapy rapidly, rapidly up titrate to get the maximum target doses. We've 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 literally stolen from our cardiology colleagues because that that mantra is so important, particularly when in the era of SGLT2s, when we know that you know you don't have to wait for a year to see the curves, the the survival curves dividing with SGLT2s. These the you know the curves diverge, diverge hospitalization heart failure after several weeks. So it's about changing the mindset of of starting a medicine waiting you know three months perhaps maybe up titrating the ace waiting another three months our patients don't have that time to wait because every day they are not on optimized therapy they're exposing themselves to more risk of heart failure more risk of cardiovascular events more risk of heavy proteinuria progressive ckd and so there's there's in london where where i work there's been a big um strategy to how do we get patients with 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 ckd on optimized therapy early and we've come up with a, a kind of three and three guideline approach where we need to do three actions in three months to try and optimize our patients, and and this is met with quite a big pushback because it's it's a change in mindset of how we look after patients with with chronic kidney disease. But I th- as I said, SGLT2s have given us the opportunity to really make the case for this. So getting patients on an ACE, getting them on an optimized dose of ACE, um, you know, GFR and potassium permitting, then getting them rapidly on an SGLT2, and then getting their blood pressure to target. And I think with with those three things kind of altering the playing field to uh, get people rapidly up titrated and, and then and then arguably if they if they've got less bad ckd if they don't develop heart failure then they are they are less timely to look after in the long term they don't have to come and see their primary care physicians as frequently if they're if they're optimized and so the the hope is that through this um we would we would reduce the workload in the years to come it will be at the cost of a little bit more workload at the start um, and that is a conversation I'm still having with my primary care colleagues. So it's a work in progress, but but hopefully that will lead to to changes and both ultimately lead to improved survival and and less you know dialysis utilization and less heart failure hospitalization. That's a wonderful model, and uh, I, I I I might steal the the three and three notion because that that is quite uh, kind of clever and innovative and forward looking. Um, in heart failure, um, we recently had a trial that was uh, put forth called Strong HF. Um, this was a uh, clinical trial that was globally conducted that actually tested this notion of rapid optimization um, of guideline-directed medical therapies in heart failure. And what they found was um, really putting forth four drugs rapidly at target doses um, not only was safe, but actually averted clinical events. And so I wonder if this three and three strategy can actually be tested and um, uh, and uh, perhaps that would also go uh, uh, go the extra mile in terms of convincing uh, our colleagues in primary care and otherwise that um, early optimization of chronic kidney disease is certainly worthwhile. Uh, this has been uh, such a pleasure to be able to chat with you and um, and learn from you. Um, I think, you know, my, my takeaways is that in each of the fronts of diagnosis, referral, and treatment, that these need to be um, optimized not only in a standard manner, but at an earlier stage um, in time point, because current care is not only um, uh, delayed and inadequate, 
but unfortunately sometimes uh, is uh, not done. And um, unfortunately our patients are either not diagnosed, not referred or not treated in an optimal manner. So early referral, early diagnosis and early treatment um, should become standard practice. And I hope that we can continue to work together um, uh, in the future. It's been a brilliant discussion. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast episode produced by Radcliffe Medical Education. This podcast series is supported through an unrestricted educational grant from AstraZeneca. Thank you again for listening and see you next month for the next episode.